Today's reading comes from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 14, verses 13 to 25. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, Will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You may be seated. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we ask now that you would... Come by your spirit and transform us through your word. Shape the way we think and act and feel. Father, and I pray, would you make yourself known this morning? Would we know that you are here in this place, in our midst, right now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Daniel. If you are new or visiting, let me also add my welcome to Jake's. I do invite you, if you have a Bible, to open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, 13 to 25. We're going to be spending the rest of our time in those verses. And, and so for the last few weeks, uh, actually since chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, has been explaining uh, the use and practice of spiritual gifts. He's been talking about what they are, how they operate, to whom they've been given, from whom they've been given. And then in chapter 14, there's a little bit of a shift. In chapter 14, Paul kind of narrows down and talks specifically about how tongues are supposed to operate when the church gathers together. And the way he goes about explaining that is by actually helping the church understand the very purpose for their gathering. If the church can understand why they meet together, if they can understand what they're trying to accomplish when they gather together, then that can kind of regulate the way they practice their gifts. They can ask themselves, is this, is this gift of mine really contributing to, to the whole and what we've come here to do? And so this morning, that's what I want us to look at. I want us to examine the, the purpose for the church's gathering. Why are we here this morning? 
Throughout um, history, the, the church has prioritized being together. So from the very first moments after Jesus's ascension, his followers would, would gather together on the, on the temple court grounds to, to, to be together, to be with one another. As the church spread outward from, from Jerusalem, Christians would, would gather in each other's homes. And sometimes this was at the, the cost or the, the risk of one's very own life. So a number of years ago, my family and I had the chance to visit Rome. And one of the places we visited there was Nero's palace. Nero was an emperor in, in Rome, uh, near the beginnings of the, the early Christian church, and he was a wicked man. And so one of the things we got to see is these pillars in this kind of large room, and it's on those pillars that Nero would actually hang Christians and burn them alive. They would act as torches or lights on the wall so that his dinner guests could see what they're eating. And so that same trip, just a, a little bit away, uh, underground, my family visited the catacombs. These were these underground, literally dug out of the dirt, pathways and, and rooms so that Christians could gather in safety. And that same practice of, of risking one life to, to be together continues today in Afghanistan, in Iran, and in elsewhere. The priority of gathering. Um, my grandfather passed away just over a, a year ago, and near the end of his life, he was uh, 90 years old, um, his health, as you can imagine, began to fail. And so some of his favorite things were to be in his garden, tending his vegetables and his fruit trees. That's what he loved and delighted in doing. But on Fridays and Saturdays, he would shut it down. On Fridays and Saturdays, he would refuse to do the very thing he loved to do because he knew he needed to rest. If he didn't rest on those days, he wouldn't have the energy to make it on Sunday to the church's gathering. So why? Why does a nine-year-old who's literally gathered thousands of times with the people of God on a Sunday, why, why are Christians risking their lives to be together? It's because of what God wants to do when we gather. It's because God has a plan for us right now as we sit here with one another. And so this morning I want us to look at four things. I want to look at four things pertaining to the church gathering. The gathering is instructional, participational, that word is not a real word, but it rhymes, invitational, and fourthly eternal. Instructional, participational, invitational, and eternal. So firstly, the church's gathering is to be instructional. Look at verse 13 again. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, 
In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul saying this, Church, in your midst, there are individuals who have the gift of tongues. Some of you have this gift. It's the ability to uh, supernaturally, right? It's, it's a gift given by God to supernaturally communicate in a language that you have not learned. And what it does is it enables you to express your feelings or emotions either in prayer or in song to God. If, if any of you have ever felt like you, there's this deep inner feeling or emotion inside, but you just don't know how to verbalize it, what well, well, tongues provides individuals with an out, uh, outlet to communicate those, those feelings. And Paul says, look, this is a good thing. Verse 18, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul says, yes, you have the gift of tongues. Use that gift. But, he says, use it in certain times and in certain places. He says, if you're doing it on your own, fantastic. But if you're in the public gathering, then it might not be helpful. See, the problem with tongues is that other people can't understand you. So, я могу поговорить по-русски, но если ты не понимаешь, что я говорит, then it doesn't serve you. That's Russian, and it's not tongues because I had to go to Russian school to learn it. <laughs> but look, the, Paul's point is, if, you, if you're going to use your tongue, if you feel as though God has given you something inwardly to express through tongues, then, then you should, he says in verse 13, what does he say? You should pray that you may interpret. Which is, you, sh you should do this, church. If you have the gift of tongues and you feel like, God, do you want me to share this? Then you need to genuinely ask God. This is a command. Ask God, God, if this is what you want me to share, help me to be able to communicate this in such a way where people can understand it. Because he says, look, if people don't understand it, he says in verse 17, it doesn't build anyone up. Verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And so Paul will say in verse 19, look, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. 10,000 is literally the highest number you could count to in Greek back then. Paul's saying, look, I could go on and on and on in tongues, but actually what's better and what actually has the power to build up is five words would do more value. Jesus died and is alive, does far more than communicating in a way where other people can't understand you. I think uh, uh, one of the critiques brought against Christianity and, uh, and other religions as well is that um, we are not grounded in reality or reason. We're, we're not grounded in reality or reason. So Frederick Nietzsche, he's speaking more broadly, but he says this, and I think this applies to, to people's critique of Christianity. He says this, they regard beautiful feelings as arguments, the heaving breast as the bellows of divine inspiration, conviction as the criterion of truth. 
We're all, we're all about feelings, emotions, whatever, whatever gets our heart fluttering, that, that's what we believe in. And is that, is that true? Well, I would say at the very least, this is not what Paul says is true in 1 Corinthians 14. That is not biblical Christianity. In fact, the opposite of true. Uh, Christians are the ones who actually founded the modern scientific movement because they said God is a rational God who made us in his image. We have the ability and actually the duty to understand the world through the empirical use of investigation. That's what we're meant to do. Oxford, Harvard, Yale, Cambridge were all explicitly Christian universities. So Christians have long valued and prized the use of the mind. And is that not what Paul says here? Verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, use your mind. Verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. In, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we read these words. Paul is again writing here, this time to the church in Ephesus, and he says this. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. How does change come? How are we transformed as individuals and as a community? Paul says, it's through our minds. It's through better knowing Christ. It's through learning. It's by remembering the truth and putting away falsehood. And so when we come together, we're to, to speak to one another so that we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. Um, when we gather here, we only have a, a limited time. And so we are very intentional about what we do here about the things that are said or go unsaid. Everything from our call to worship is carefully thought through. Our, our confession and assurance, we want those to very clearly articulate and communicate our need of God and his great love and mercy for us. The, the songs we choose, we, we don't just sing the, the most popular, hippest, latest songs that are out there. There are songs that are great and are awesome to work out to because they pump you up and make you feel excited inside, but communicate very little. And so we're, we're very careful about singing songs that are rich in theology. From our benediction to our prayers to our sermons, all of it, we're trying to articulate who Jesus is. So we come to know God, to understand who he is through the use of our minds. Christianity is not based on feelings. It does not mean that our feelings are unimportant or that feelings don't flow from what we know, but first we're grounded on what we know to be true, 
and then our feelings follow. Secondly, the church's gathering is participational. Participational. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? That word outsider there uh, is literally the word unlearned one. So Paul's saying, look, if you speak in tongues and someone doesn't have the ability to understand you, they're unlearned in that language, and you do that without an interpretation, not only, one, can people not understand what is being said, but secondly, Paul now says, people can't affirm what is being said. People can't say, amen. That word, amen, right? Thank you, God, for this food in Jesus' name. Amen, right? We say it all the time. That word uh, is initially a Hebrew word. Uh, God had given the nation of Israel a number of commands and laws for the flourishing of their society. And those laws were initially supposed to be read in, to the general public outside, with where the nation is, is gathering and, and listening in. And at the end of each law being read, the people would chime in, Amen. Meaning, yes, we agree with that. We, we stand with that. We, we affirm the law that was just read. It's valid for me. And then what's happened is that word amen, which is literally or sounds like amen in Hebrew, became amen in Greek, which then became amen in English. And so what Paul is expecting to happen here in this church is that someone would, would pray or sing in a way that other people can understand, and then the congregation, the individuals in the congregation, would have the opportunity to, to chime in and say, Amen. Yes, we, we agree with that. And then what Amen would be, it would act as an echo to that praise. It would act as an echo to that thanksgiving. The church would join in and worship together. The church collectively would give God the glory due his name. So um, let, let, let's talk for just a second here. My mouth is as dry as the Savannah Desert because I'm taking Advil cold and sinus right now. Oh, that tastes good. Um, Last week, um, Paul Papworth, not Paul the Apostle, Paul Papworth was preaching. I'll refer to him as Papworth from now on. Papworth um, was preaching. If you were here, you, you experienced this. And he had just finished explaining the goodness of the gospel. That God, in his great love for us, not because there's anything worthy of us, but, but strictly because our God is gracious and loving and delights in us, saved us and reconciled us to himself. Paul's at preaching. He lifts his head. He looks at us as a church, and he sees that we are unresponsive. And Papworth goes, can I get an Amen. 
we, we, um, we talked a little bit about it later. And I was like, what, what was that? What, why did you, why did you say that to us? And he's like, well, he said, look, it's not because I felt insecure. It's not like I just needed your, your validation. He said, I felt provoked. I was provoked that I had just finished proclaiming about how glorious and wonderful our God is, and nobody chimed in. No, nobody wanted to celebrate that with me. It, it's as though you had just finished eating a, a meal at one of Vancouver's new Michelin star restaurants. You, you and your buddy walk out, and you begin to say, like, wasn't that great? Wasn't that awesome? What an incredible experience. And the other person is silent. And immediately you go, well, that diminishes the value of the meal. That, that downplays the excellence of what we just went through. And so I think Papworth was right. I, I, think, I think Paul, the apostle, is right. We dropped the ball last week. And I say me because we, because I was sitting right there and I was silent too. Christ City, we, um, we have some weird language around here. You can say amen to that if you like. Um, one of, one of the things we, we say is gathering instead of service. We do church gatherings, not church services. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that's just semantics. But we actually are intentional about using that language. The word service is, is part of the swear jar we have on our staff team. Because we want to communicate that you don't come here to just be served. You don't, you don't come just to receive. You actually come as a contributor, a, as a participant in what we are collectively about. And, and one of the ways Paul says we do that is through verbal affirmation is through this word, amen. Now, that's not a ethnical thing. That's not a denominational thing. Th that's a biblical thing, Paul says. Now, now some of you, I, I know, you are very comfortable about verbal affirmation. You're like, amen doesn't go nearly far enough. I'm the hallelujah guy, or the, the yeah, come on preacher, and keep going, and you're, you're clapping, and shouting, and, and we need that, actually. Please help us move in that direction. Other of you, though, you're just silent and bottled up because you don't know that this is actually what God intends for you to do, that, that praise isn't meant to be bottled up inside. And so it can be an amen, or it can just be even be like a mm-hmm. <laughs> like that would be good. Or like a yes, Lord. Please, Lord. I believe it. All of that adds, it becomes an echo of praise. It becomes this, this harmony of worship that we're lifting up to our God. So, so verbal affirmation, we, we participate not for the praise and glory of God, but also actually for the good of others, for, for, for the good of others. Um, in his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes this, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now he says this, listen. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically 
Charlesian Job. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. We possess each friend not less, but more as the number of those with whom we share him increases. See, this is what Lewis thought. He thought he had four dear friends. Unfortunately, one had passed away, but he thought, that's okay, I get more of my other three friends. And Lewis says, I'm actually wrong. Because my fourth friend brought out something in each of those other three friends that only he could bring out. I actually don't just lose that friend. I lose an aspect of every other one of my friends. Lewis's point is this. You come to know someone in community. We come to know God in community. Each of you, each of us, brings out a certain aspect of God for the others to see. So, how does this look? If I'm preaching, or someone's preaching, on the forgiveness of God, and out I hear an amen, and I look over and I know that that person has had a rough past, and in that moment, I'm struggling with doubt and the feeling of guilt and feeling ashamed that I've fallen into sin again, that amen pulls me upward and says, okay, maybe I do need to believe in the forgiveness of God. When we're in prayer circles and we're praying, God, please provide. And someone says, yes, Lord. And that person just lost their job. It reminds me that that is something good and to pray for, that I, that I can rely on God to provide. If we're worshiping together and we're singing about the faithfulness of God and I hear someone with arms wide open just singing in full abandon. And I know that that person just lost a loved one. That's a pull to me. Daniel, believe in the faithfulness of God. We communicate those things to one another. We each share an aspect of who God is through our own personal experiences and through our verbal affirmation. We are participants. We add our praise to God and we communicate something about God. Thirdly, the church's gathering is invitational. Invitational. Verse 20 says this. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Here's what's Paul's, what Paul's saying. He's saying not only can speaking in tongues in the public gathering be potentially unhelpful, but it can actually also be harmful. It can be harmful, he says. Again, he is thinking of the outsider, he says in verse 23. But this time, it's specifically the unbelieving outsider. It's the, the non-Christian who also cannot understand that tongue that is being communicated. And he says, look, when that person comes, 
If they were all to, if that person was to hear all of us speaking a language that was totally foreign to them, they would feel that we are out of our mind, literally possessed, Paul says, and not welcome. That they would be not welcome. And, and to make his point, Paul quotes the Old Testament. He says in verse 21, in the law it is written. Paul here is explicitly uh, quoting from uh, Isaiah chapter 28. In Isaiah 28, uh, the prophet Isaiah has come to the leaders of Israel, and he's proclaiming a word of judgment upon them. These individuals in Isaiah 28, these leaders, have failed to lead. They're getting drunk on wine, and they're ignoring matters of injustice. And so Isaiah is coming to them, and he's saying, look, you need to change. God's going to judge you. And look at how the leaders respond. Isaiah 28 verse 9 says this. They're talking about Isaiah. To whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And then he quotes, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. Here, here, here's what's happening. Isaiah's coming to them, pronouncing a word of judgment, and these leaders go, that's crazy talk, Isaiah. You, you know what? You, you sound like a baby. All this talk about judgment, that's baby talk. That, that line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, it's probably better translated as just goo-goo gaga. The Hebrew is literally just a, a random collection of words. Just goo-goo gaga. Isaiah, you know this talk of judgment that you're pronouncing? That's baby talk. You sound like goo-goo gaga. And so Isaiah says, okay, you're right. Judgment does sound like goo-goo gaga because the Assyrians are going to come. They're going to judge and punish you. And by the way, you don't understand their language. So you know what they sound like? Goo-goo gaga. So if judgment sounds like goo-goo gaga, you're right. Now, Paul takes that same idea and he says, look, when we're speaking in tongues and an outsider comes they're going to feel the same way Israel felt when the Assyrians came. That this is judgment upon them. That, that this is no longer their home. That they're not welcome here. That they're outsiders and outcasts. And if you've ever entered into a group of people where you don't understand what they're saying or they speak a different language, you probably have a, a feeling about how this actually feels like and looks like. So um, uh, over a decade ago now, I uh, can't believe it's been that long, uh, my best friend and I, we went on a missions trip to Montreal. Now, my friend doesn't speak a word of French, uh, but they teach you certain things, right, before you're going on this trip that you just need. Like, where is the bathroom, please? And so he's, he's looking for a bathroom, and he asks this person in Montreal, uh, he says, excuse me, où sont les toilettes? Where's, where's the bathroom? And the other person literally in perfect English goes, I don't speak English. You can think about that one for a second. And, 
And he, my friend goes, oh, I'm not welcome here. You don't like that someone from BC has come here to Montreal, and I don't speak your language. That, that's what Paul is concerned is going to happen, that we would be an unwelcoming community. But that's not what our gatherings are supposed to be. So Paul says, look, instead of speaking in tongues, you should prophesy. Ver- verse 24 says, but if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his hearts are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare, God is really among you. See, if we prophesy instead, and we, and we share the things that God has put on our heart to communicate, then God can actually use that to speak to the people who are coming and checking things out. It, it could be that God gives you a very specific word for a specific individual. So I was reading this past week of a pastor, Charles Spurgeon in England, who had this experience. He's literally preaching. He looks up. He feels like God has put something on his heart. He points at a young man and says, young man, those gloves you are wearing are not your own. You stole them from your employer. And he just goes back on to preaching. And that young man comes up to Spurgeon afterwards and goes, please do not tell my mom. It's the first time I've ever done this, I promise. And if she finds out I stole something, she'll kill me. But look, it, it could be specific or it could just be general. We could just be sharing something that God's put on our heart that, that communicates something specific about God's character or something specific about our, our human nature. And an outsider can come and they could hear that and go, that's me. That's what I've been feeling. That, that's what I'm going through right now. How, how have you been reading my mail? And all of a sudden they realize God is real. And more than that, God sees me despite the, the depths of my depravity. God actually looks at me. He knows me intimately and he reaches out to me. He's, he's speaking to me now. And all of a sudden, they become convicted of their sin, and they turn to God, and they announce, verse 25, God is really here in this place. I think um, we have placed a lot of emphasis on personal evangelism, and rightly so, on the one-to-one evangelism, the, the communicating of who God is and how that affects the way I live. But we should not forget that this gathering is also intentional to be evangelistic. That when we come, we, we gather not for the judgment of outsiders, but for their invitation as a call and a plea to have them join us and experience the same loving grace that God has poured out on us. Come as you are. You're a skeptic. Bring your objections. Come. It's okay to not be okay. Let us proclaim to you the good news of Jesus. And then we invite others to join in. Lastly, the gathering is eternal. The gathering is eternal. Look at verse 25 again. It says, The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Uh, that verse is also a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah 8 verse 20 to 23 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many people, of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, again, this is the language of 1 Corinthians 14, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That God is among you. And so, what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians is he's saying, this passage, this prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled. When people come and they join us, this, this language of the nations gathering into the people of God is beginning to come true. But get this, church, now is just the start. One, one day this will be complete. And so we read this in Revelation 5. It says this, same language, and they sang a new song. This is what we're going to be doing in heaven. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Or you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Do, do you see what will be Christ city? That the nations will hear of Jesus the Lamb who was slain on their behalf for the forgiveness of their sins. And they want in on that. They want to come and gather to worship the Savior who died for them. And so we will gather one day, church, with all the nations. We'll all be one family. And what will we do? We'll join in the song. We'll sing. We'll be participants. We'll all with all our various languages, lift our voices to praise our God and King. Christ City, this is what we're saved for. This is what we're saved to. Why do we gather? Why, why do we risk our lives? Why do people risk their lives to gather with the church? Why as a 90-year-old or a 19-year-old or a nine-year-old, do we long to be together? It's because we long for heaven. And the gathering right now is a foretaste of what we will do in heaven forever and ever and ever. It's a foretaste of the age to come. That's what we're here to do, to taste and see what we'll do always to the end of ages. Let me pray for us. Father, we right now, we do believe. Help our unbelief, Lord. We believe that we are uh, experiencing a foretaste of what we will one day get to do. Lord, one day we will not only um, sense your presence in our midst, Lord, but we will see you there with us. God, we look forward to that day when we see Jesus face to face when we are gathered as one family, 
people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to worship you. Father, we thank you for Jesus who was slain on our behalf. His blood shed so ours wouldn't have to be. We pray this in thanksgiving. And all God's people said, Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.